moment about what is represented by the palm branch. First, of course, the very creation of God sings his praises. Psalms tell us that, um, that as, as effectively and as consistently and continually as, uh, as the, the beauty of nature responds back to God, we have the opportunity to lift our hearts and our voices willingly. So we do this in understanding. I was right along a four-lane highway when I was about 15 years old with uh, one of the women in the kingdom of God who became kind of like a temporary mom in the faith to me. And we were riding along on this long highway, and um, she got to talking to me about the book of Isaiah. And we're on this long trip, and she's sharing with me what the Lord was opening up to her out of Isaiah. And we're looking at these green trees on the side of the road, and she said, you know what I found out that green has been proven to be one of the most restful colors for the eyes. And she said, I drew from that an understanding that God embedded into nature countless things that we don't even understand to demonstrate his glory. But when we lift the palm branch, we're saying, oh God, you are Lord of my soul. And we're declaring your coming conquest over all the evil that we see around us in the world. In fact, if you've been troubled by any really evil news across a TV screen or a computer screen lately, hey, that's an easy question, isn't it? Could you join me in waving our palm branches to say, King of kings, Lord of lords, our King of glory, we acknowledge your awesome authority to bring down the wicked and the oppressor and to raise up the righteous and the godly. You can intervene at every point of need for your people. And Lord, with the palm branches, we declare your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. And then there's one other aspect of the palm branches that I think I'd like to keep with our boys and girls here because when they come back from their class uh, at the conclusion of our message time, I'm going to ask them to do what I'll ask you to do. I'd like you to think for a moment when they cried out, Hosanna, save us, each of them individually was casting before the Lord Jesus as they laid those palm branches on the road before the donkey, casting before him that for which only he can fulfill. That is, there are four takeaways from our time together, and they're like this. Trust Jesus, serve Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus. Could you help me with that and let's say it together? Trust Jesus, serve Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus. Let's do it one more time. Trust Jesus, serve Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus. And one way we follow him is by bringing our heart's need to the Father. So I'm going to ask you to think of this palm leaf and this tiny branch in your hand as a symbol of what in your heart today you need to completely recommit to God and cast before the feet of our Savior. And then I'd like to ask boys and girls as they come back in and, ma and teachers to ask them to think about something they want to give to God. All of you, I'll ask you to do the same. As they come back in, I'm going to ask boys and girls to go over to the cross and lay their palm branches at the foot of the cross. And then I'll invite you, as we're concluding today, to come and lay your palm branch at the foot of the cross. But I'd like to ask you to do it 
with something in your heart attached to that palm branch. I'm committing it to you. Well, our boys and girls now are going to Pathfinders and Explorers classes. And uh, just before they go, I want to do a quick show and tell. And that is one of our little, one of our explorers made this this morning spontaneously. Little Brooklyn came in today and put together a cross to honor Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And I just wanted to share it with you, a little show and tell. Thank you, Brooklyn. That's beautiful. All right, you can go to your classes. Would you take a moment to reach across the aisle and just reach out to somebody to say hello and welcome them, and we want to welcome each of our guests today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, good morning to all of you, and I want to welcome each of our guests. We thank you for being a part of this time of, of coming to honor our victorious king. It's truly a, a, truly a part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we cherish here at Liberty Church, that whether it's by many or by few, whether it's uh, a gathering of 35 or 40 or it's 3,000 or 30,000, the, the, the unity of Christ among his people, the power of his presence, is, is completely, totally available to us, not only to count on, but to walk in it, to express it one to another. Um, thank you for being with us today. If you're a guest for the first or the second or third time, and each of you that are a part of this time of celebration are very dear to us. And, of course, as a part of um, our church life, at various times, we, we seek to make our time at the table of the Lord um, a heart preparation and a time in which the Lord Jesus and his awesome sufficiency in the cross is at the central focus. And so this Friday night, our Good Friday worship and communion will be our invitation to each of you to come to the table of the Lord, to gather with us for worship, for a time of of. Re- observance of the Lord's Supper and reflection together about um, what we have delved into a bit in this covenant series. Today is the fifth of a five-part series that uh, we began looking at tracing uh, the glory of the covenant-keeping nature of God. And we began four, uh, five weeks ago at Mount Sinai where God's covenant-keeping nature was revealed in the in the vast gap, the vast chasm between the majestic holiness of God and the individual condition of every soul. And then we talked about uh, the covenant, that covenant journey beginning in that wilderness of, uh, of Sinai and then leading into the, the covenant certainty that he expressed in a very pregnant phrase in the Old Testament called the sure mercies of David where God anchored all that would happen in the coming plan of salvation in a covenant that could never be broken 
because God the Father sealed it in the blood of his own son. We looked at that um, covenant um, certainty as the reason that when John the Baptist came in our third message, the confrontation that each of us need to realize in a personal way that each of us are called to prepare the way of the Lord. And the way we do that is by that simple word, but it often misunderstood word, repent. The word repent is often misunderstood because um, grammatically we connect it in our brain with a word that has a religious tradition wrapped around it called penance. That's a concept of individuals somehow making compensation for their sin. But what we saw in John the Baptist is there's no place for penance because he told the people that came to be baptized at the Jordan River that the Father is able to raise up children of God from these very stones. No, the axe, he said, is laid at the root of the tree, meaning the very core of our being where we repent and the response to God is repenting, turning to God, realizing in Christ alone is the place of our deliverance. And so we saw that repentance is not penance. It's never penance. We also saw that repentance is not remorse or regret. We can cry crocodile tears till the cows come home and still have a stubborn, rebellious, unbroken will. No, repentance is responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we saw in our fourth session on the covenant last week is a covenant sacrifice. Now, that would the repentance of week three would be impossible without the covenant sacrifice of week four because it is in this understanding, it's the realization that is shown us in the gospel that it is through the shedding of the blood of the sacrificed lamb sent before the foundation of the world to bring us the complete fulfillment, the complete atonement for our sin. We've walked through some of this because I found something interesting about the good news, and we'll see it today in Palm Sunday as well. That is, the good news not only touches and brings life to our soul, the good news also can help shift the way we think about things. When we think according to the Word of God, we are experiencing another aspect of the gift of God in Christ Jesus. So when we think about it like this, we understand that atonement, that word is often not even spoken in churches today because of the fact that it isn't well understood, but the word atonement is not human of human origin. It is the atoning sacrifice of what Jesus did for us. So I tried to summarize it for you last week, and I want to do that quick review because it's such a good takeaway. We'll be looking at three quick applications of this on Good Friday. It's a simple way to remember what the atoning sacrifice of Jesus does for us. Think for a minute of what the Bible says that we all know so well, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We can summarize this wonderful sacrificial offering of the body of Jesus in three ways. First, he was my substitute. One died for all. Would you say that with me? One died for all. The second fundamental fact about the cross of Jesus Christ is that what Jesus said on Calvary, it 
is finished. So the second part of this is once for all. Once for all, nothing can ever be added to the merit of the, of the sacrificial offering of the body of our Savior. So would you say aloud with me that second phrase, once for all. We might put it in the words Jesus used himself on the cross, it is finished. Would you say that with me? It is finished. And then the third part, one died for all, he's my substitute on Calvary's cross. Once for all, he has accomplished all that ever needs to be done. Nothing can ever be added to the victorious, vicarious, bloody sacrifice of our Savior, the Lamb of God. And the third is one mediator for all. Would you say that with me? One mediator for all. And this is where the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.15 that now in the new covenant, Jesus himself ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, with all of that together, just as a, as a thumbnail sketch, I want to bring you today to what I believe Palm Sunday gives us in light of the precise plan of God to bring joy, to bring confidence, to bring hope, and to bring purpose to every human heart by the simple fact that the King of Glory has entered the gate to claim what belongs to him. So we saw the covenant journey was the holiness revealed. In the covenant certainty, we saw that God's gift of salvation comes in the person of the Messiah. In the covenant confrontation with John the Baptist, we saw that repentance is defined as turning to Christ, turning to our Deliverer, turning to our Savior, and isn't that what these palm branches remind us of? I'm waving the palm branch as a reminder that I turn away from my self-sufficiency and I turn to the king and I welcome the king in my heart as joyously and jubilantly as children crying in the streets of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus to the holy city. And then the covenant sacrifice, the blood of the lamb. Oh, this is why why the book of Revelation pivots around a fascinating fact that in the most cataclysmic events of human history, there is a secret truth that is in the hearts of the redeemed people of God that even when evil appears to be triumphing, the true triumph is in the kingdom that has already been given through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is, we live in a kingdom that is already conquering and God gives us a part in seeing the advance of his good news around the world. So the book of Revelation pivots on this fact in chapter 12, 11 of Revelation, where it tells us that people facing the most ominous and most unbelievable cataclysmic challenges imaginable, these people overcome that which is around them by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by loving not their lives unto the death. Revelation 12, 11 gives us a future picture of what Palm Sunday gives us in the past. And we might want to think about it in this way, that the blood of the Lamb, confidence in the blood of our Savior shed on Calvary's cross, that we will stand in awe in remembrance of this Friday night, 
is the reason that the prophetic word echoes through the corridors of time from the prophet Zechariah until the pen of Matthew, the former tax collector, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, given new life in Christ, now writing the gospel of Matthew in the sixth decade of the first century, 30 years, 22 or 23 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And Matthew is now explaining why Jesus chose a donkey, why he sent two disciples to a little village called Beth Bethany, aside to the larger community of Bethphage, to find a colt that was tied at a post, and to go to that colt upon which no man had ever sat, and untie that colt as the Mother donkey follows behind this little colt, the smaller beast of burden, becomes the vehicle. We might in modern times say the limousine for the king. He chooses this awkward and ungainly and unexpected beast of burden. He climbs his lanky Jewish legs over that, that donkey and he rides along a humble beast of burden being declared the coming promised one. What a contrast to the way of the world. And Matthew is inscribing this, and as he gets to that place where he sees Jesus going along the road with his long legs draped over the side of that colt upon which no man had ever sat, Matthew's spirit is igniting the Old Testament prophetic word. And Matthew is inscribing Zechariah 9.9 in these words. Would you read it aloud with me? Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Yes, the arrival of the monarch of God's future plan has arrived, not in a stretch limo, not in a sea of secret service vehicles, not in a, not in a, in a great uh, sailing vessel, a great uh, warship on the high seas. No, he's come on a donkey. And not just any donkey, an unbroken donkey. Like the tomb he'll temporarily use from Good Friday until the morning of his resurrection, a tomb hewn out of rock in which no man has ever laid. Our Savior takes a donkey upon which no man has ever ridden, and the Lord of glory adopts it for his entry. One of the most um, intriguing stops Becky and I made in Paris in 1997 when we were on a trip where I was speaking in a church in the suburb of Paris through a translator, and we got a chance to spend a good bit of time just touring all over but I think probably the highlight of our time in France was, was getting back to that Arc de Triomphe. Many of you have been there. And you walk there and you see that uh, magnificent structure reminding uh, all of the French people of, uh, of the great uh, exploits of the past. But probably the most memorable in recent history of that Arc de Triomphe was when General Eisenhower brought the Allied troops uh, after the liberation of the Dachau concentration camps and, and General Eisenhower and their troops came through in a majestic parade celebrating the conquest over a vicious and unimaginable tyranny of evil that had gripped all of Europe for over four and a half years. 
And as they came through the Arc de Triomphe, the jubilation, the celebration of conquest over that evil was of, of mammoth proportions. I had the great good fortune of talking with a, a, a French shopkeeper right there off the Arc de Triomphe, the, uh, that, um, that boulevard that in French, I can never say that French name of that boulevard, many of you know what it is. But as I get into this little shop, there's a woman with really good English. She's probably in her 70s, and she's grown up bilingual, and so I didn't need a translator. And we had a long conversation, and she shared with me how much the uh, freedom that they enjoy in that part of the world that people of her age group recognize would never have happened without the heroism and the sacrifice of the American GIs and all that took place in those days. And uh, she spoke of such love for this country because of that experience. Well, I got to thinking about the fact that uh, in history, all of the great triumphs of a, of a military, uh, either a liberation or an invasion, were celebrated, even back to the days of Alexander the Great. In fact, when Zechariah 9.9 was pinned, when Zechariah was saying, Rejoice, Zion, daughter of Zion, for your king is coming to you humble, lowly, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey... He was writing within the same time period that Alexander the Great's great Greek advance of, of, um, of armies were destined to take over many parts of the world. And the prophetic fulfillment is, is awesome in contrast. Alexander the Great would carry the captives of war, the spoils of war, into the city. Just as Eisenhower and the troops came into the center of Paris and, and brought uh, the, the reminders of the conquest. And yet these, these invaders of history would do the same thing. And, and oftentimes crowds would meet them and, and they would come burning incense in honor of the emperor. And they would worship idols many times and, and they would present gifts to the emperor uh, showing the power of their, uh, their, their conquest. Well, over against this, Zechariah's words have a gripping contrast. Behold, daughter of Zion, do not be afraid. Would you say with me, fear not? Uh, for your king is coming to you, but your king is not coming as a conqueror bent on conquest on human power. No, your conqueror is not coming on a charging white stallion. Your conqueror is not coming carrying the spoils of war of the, of the, of the booty that has been captured and of the reminders of the lives that have been lost. No, it's, it's, it's a dramatic and poetic reversal of that. Your king is coming, and he's going to choose the cult of a donkey, never before ridden by a human being, and he is bringing salvation. And rather than arrogance and pride and a cocky attitude of utter domination of others, this king is coming with lowly meekness, though he is the Lord of glory. He's chosen of total humiliation in preparing the way for, yes, the Father's glory to be proclaimed with hosannas, and yet he knows as he rides the donkey into Jerusalem that the king of glory is entering these gates. This is the gate into which the righteous will enter. We read earlier in Psalms. This is the day which the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. 
And yet Jesus knows every split second of that triumphal entry that this triumph is become because of his coming crucifixion, crucifixion on Friday. He will, in fact, on the donkey, demonstrate for us what Philippians 2, 6 tells us about God. That Christ, the Son, being equal with the Father, yet did not think of that equality as something to jealously grasp and keep for himself. But Philippians 2, 7 tells us, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God, the Father also, has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With these branches we will say what they said, O God, I give you my heart, I give you my praises, I come to the master on the donkey, and I say thank you for humbling yourself to be my conqueror. This is why when they heard, when all of these heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took these branches of palm trees, lifted again with me, and went out to meet him. I'm asking you to do today to do what John 12, 3 says they did. I'm asking you today to go out to meet him. I'm asking you today to bring your heart Jesus Christ with fresh expectancy and confidence as one who says, Hosanna to the King. Could you say it with me? Hosanna to the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's say that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the reason all of this comes together in this astounding event, and we see the contrast of the humility of the Son of God, is that God again here as we conclude this series is giving us the covenant-keeping character that we saw in the Old Testament, and yet it's displayed in the way that only the Messiah could display it. No other conqueror could do what Jesus did. No other conqueror, he had more, far more power than General Eisenhower had in Paris in 1945. He had far more power than Alexander the Great had in 333 BC. He had far more authority than any tin pot dictator or tyrannical ruler today such as the troublemaker out of Moscow that is creating such unspeakable heartache and grief across the globe today. No, Jesus, he told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And his priority in that very verse touches each of us in this place. What should we do under that authority? He made it clear. He left no mistake. Go, you! in all the world, and make disciples of the nations. And so as he displayed it, I, I want to capture three aspects of how he displayed the keep, covenant-keeping character of God. First, in the disciples' discoveries about the donkey. 
Secondly, in a quick prophetic portrait from the book of Genesis. And thirdly, because of the precision timing in the plan of God. And what I hope you take away from this first is the disciple discovery mirrors something we can take home with us. And it is a simple and wonderful fact that God will use you in your ordinary life, ordinary life, to be a servant of his glorious kingdom. Secondly, the prophetic portrait of Jesus coming to Jerusalem reminds us that God's plan for our salvation required both the authority and the humility. He had to have all authority. The one holding the scepter had to voluntarily humble himself even to the death of the cross. And then finally, the precision timing of God should remind all of us that God's timing is a gift to you. Do you remember, do you know how valuable it is to be aware when you wake up every day that the, uh, the, that the clock of your life's trajectory is in the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. You can say, as Psalm 31:15 is, my times are in your hand. You can trust, as Ephesians 5:16 says we can, that you can redeem the time because the days are evil. Why? Because you have a good God, you have a gracious, loving Heavenly Father, and He is Lord over time. Think first of the disciples' discovery about the donkey. In a, in a stunning and incredible confluence of events, when you read in Mark 11 and John 19 and Luke 19, when you read about Jesus sending those two disciples over to get that donkey off of that post, and then if anyone asks, why are you taking the donkey, to tell them the Lord's need of the donkey. Say it aloud with me. The Lord has need of the donkey. Can you believe that? Did you just say that in church? The Lord needs donkeys. Yeah, you just said that, didn't you? I caught you. And it caught the disciples by surprise as well. And one of the remarkable aspects of all the four Gospels, that this is one event in which all four of them give us a parallel account with varied details in each one. But what's fascinating is, that none of them named the two disciples. Now, we can only guess, and we dare not go beyond the Scripture, of course, you know that, but we can guess, and one of the striking clues is in Mark 10, and I'd like you to think about Mark 10 just for a moment. You might even want to look at it in your Bible. Take a moment and just turn over there to Mark chapter 10, because in this passage is something very interesting that takes place. There, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, there are two two disciples who come to the Lord Jesus, and they have a request. And their request is simply this. In verse 36 of Mark 10, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied in verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, you kind of laugh when you read those verses, don't you? Here you picture these guys. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been accompanying Jesus. They've seen the mighty miracles that he does. They've heard the words that proceed from his mouth, words which no man has ever spoken anything comparable before. 
They've been dazzled by the parables that are an entirely new form of communication in many ways that bring to their lives and their hearts an awakening that there's something about this kingdom that is so awesome and so so life-transforming that I, that I can't immediately wrap my brain around it, and yet my heart says yes. And these men have been walking with Jesus, and they now are getting closer to Jerusalem in that third Passover season that they've accompanied him. And as the crowds are, are coming, and the pilgrim groups are gathering, and the, the sheer population around Bethany and Bethphage and the other surrounding villages is growing, in anticipation of Passover, their aspirations are growing. And they're beginning to think, maybe this is the time when, when our, our promised one will break the back of the Roman tyranny. He will drive out the corruption of the temple religious authorities. And the kingdom of God will be seen in glory. And you might say, this is an understatement. They got a little ahead of themselves. Because they're asking Jesus, when your glory comes, <laughs> one of us would like to be on the right and the other on the left. <laughs> we want to secure our seats of recognition in advance. Isn't it smart to get your reservations in before the show starts? Well, we don't know who the two were in chapter 11, but it is possible, isn't it? Two out of 12. <laughs> it's possible James and John might have been the two that Jesus dispatched to go get a donkey. And, and we know whether that is the case or not. If you stay in Mark 10, look at verse 34, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 43 and 44, where Jesus takes their question. Can we sit on the right and on the left? And I can't, I can't escape the sense Jesus had to have had a quiet laugh about this. But he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism? I'm going to be baptized. Are you, are you able to endure even a fraction of what I am about to endure? Of course, they had no fo foggy idea of what he was about to endure. But he knew it. And then he used it as a fascinating life lesson in verse 43 and 44 when he said you know the the way authority works in the in the corporate or the business or the or the governmental worlds of our time a person views their authority as something as something to exercise over others to secure from them what they're not willingly giving of themselves verse 43 of mark 10 not so with you. Four great words. Say it with me. Not so with you. The contrast could not be sharper. In this kingdom, you're thinking of, guys, that ain't the kind of authority that happens. No, it's not so with you, but rather, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And Mark, verse 44 of Mark 10 Carefully, it does not imply a ladder of promotion. It's easy to misread this text and think, well, what he's saying is, if I really want to be great one day, I start low, I start low, and then I get higher, and then I move up, and then one day I become great. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, for the child of God redeemed by the blood of his Savior, 
with faith in the risen king, the real greatness is when you humble yourself and serve. Serving is greatness when it is under the reign of the king. And then look at verse 45, would you, in your text, Mark 10, 45. The Bible says that Jesus now uses this to describe his own mission. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So when I ask the question, I think, so, so, hmm, who would be the greatest? Is it the donkey or the disputing disciples? And in this case, the answer is clear. The donkey was greater than the dudes. The donkey was a lot smarter than the disputing disciples. Is it possible that some donkeys are smarter than arguing churches and conflicting believers and constant jealous pulling and tugging between people who should be loving and honoring one another? Well, the, the prophetic portrait I'll only give a snapshot of, and that is in Genesis 49, he speaks of this coming one, that uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, until the one comes to whom it belongs. In the text of Genesis 49.10, the word Shiloh is used. It's the only place Shiloh, only two, one of two places Shiloh is used in the Bible. And it literally, it's a Hebrew word. It's not talking about a town named Shiloh. It's talking about a, a fact of the identity of the coming Messiah, and it means the one to whom it rightfully belongs. Now, God says the rulership he promised in that covenant would never depart from the tribe he gave it to until the, rightfully, the rightful owner comes to claim it. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the rightful owner, the authority one over the entire city and the entire nation. And in that appearance, Jesus gives us a, a, a dual image. The prophetic portrait of Genesis gives us a dual image, a lion and a donkey, a lion and a donkey, a lion and a donkey. What does a lion and a donkey have to do with each other? Well, the lion is described as being in the pouncing position, crouched in a position of aggression, about to take over its prey. It indicates the force. The Eugene Peterson translation renders it like this. Look at him, crouched like a lion, king of the beast, who dares mess with him? Now, the lion image here pictures all authority in the Messiah. And the rulership that is promised in Genesis 49.10 is about a scepter of righteousness. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him the obedience of the nation shall be. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that this scepter is a righteous scepter. Do you know what one of the things that that means and one of the things that that does for us is it helps us to recognize that when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, God was joining together in fulfillment the fact of the lion of the tribe of Judah who chooses the ultimate image of humility 
and service, a donkey's colt, to demonstrate that his real gift to humanity will be a healthiness, a vibrancy, a wholeness of life. It's described in the text as his colt being tied to the choice vine. Jesus intentionally drew those disciples to the unloosing of a colt in fulfillment of the ancient prophecy that the prosperity and blessing of God would be seen in his own being. His garments washed in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes, is poetic imagery pointing to the cross, pointing to the fact that it would take Jesus himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah, humbling himself to use the humblest beast of burden so that the precise plan of God for the king to come among us, the king of glory to come among us, would then be ours. I want to ask you with your palm branches in hand to give this psalm back to God as a personal prayer because the psalm tells us these words so that we can do what we could never do unless Christ the lion had chosen the way of the donkey. And that is, each of us can receive the king of glory. And as we receive the king of glory, we can be assured that he is not only the Lord of glory, friends, he's the Lord of the ordinary. He's not only the king of glory, Jesus, our king, is the king of your ordinary. Would you say it with me today? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. You see, those disciples went into the city, and they found that donkey just as Jesus had commanded them. When you go out into your life today, you can go assured the command of your commanding general, the authority of your commanding general can be trusted. And you can also be sure that this king of glory is also the Lord of the ordinary. Would you say aloud with me, our four takeaways again, trust him, serve him, worship him, follow him. Heavenly Father, as we lift these palm branches, we do so in a, in a reflection of gratitude that the lion of the tribe of Judah, who could have crouched over the prey and does crouch over the prey of evil, who crouches over the prey of, a, of, of vicious dictatorships of this generation, at this very moment, the evil that we see rampantly creating unimaginable heartache across Eastern Europe, and many of the other totalitarian dictators in parts of the world that are not making the news these days, that you see it all, and as Lord of glory, when we pray, as you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, 
We take these palm branches today to remind ourselves that the lion of the tribe of Judah chose the way of the donkey. May it send us in this church, in our families, in our community, and in our world as willing riders of the donkey of simple service for the glory of Jesus. And then I pray that as we lift these palm branches, may each person here in this sanctuary and each of the children who will be coming in, may we attach to this branch something in our heart today that we need to commit to you, that we need to re-consecrate to our King. May we join the chorus of the Hosannas of Jerusalem streets. May we follow that winding path of the donkey with the master of all eternity draped across its back. And may we see you, Lord, in your awesome giving of glory. And may we lay these palm branches to trust you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name. Friends, as Justin leads us, I'm going to lead with a burden that's been on my heart for about three weeks. And it's and I brought it to the Lord several times. And the Lord impressed me. I am going to attach that to this to this uh, palm branch. And I'm, I'm going to start this. And I'd like you to join me if you have something. You're going to lay at his feet with trusting, with serving, with worship, and following him. Join me.